All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the world's happiest podcast. We are the Lorconicast team, and we are going to have a ton of fun in this episode talking about trading card game releases. We are about to see set two for Lorcana release, Rise of the Floodborne, this Friday. So this episode is going to be airing on Wednesday, November 15th. And set two is supposed to launch on the 17th, so two days from the launch of this episode. And our team is here to talk about trading card games, Lorcana, set releases, things we love, things we may or may not like, things we hope for, and just kind of go down memory lane of some of the trading card games that brought us together and brought us here to Lorcana, which is super exciting. So with us in the booth, we've got Gregothy. What is up, my man? How's it going? Hey, we're good. Uh, we have got Chris Bates. How are you, my man? What up? Good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. And James Reimer. How are you, my friend? I'm awesome. Excited to stay put. I'm done traveling for a while. <laughs> so we are going to just jump right in and have a great time. So I'm going to kick it over to James because you are absolutely our local Lorcana man who has been traveling, played some Lorcana with other people in another state, did some multiplayer. And I just love to hear some of your thoughts on like the current state of Lorcana, what you're excited about for Rise of the Floodborne. And, and just kind of your thoughts on, you know, all this exciting stuff that's going to be happening in just a few days. Definitely, definitely. So to set the scene, uh, there I was Friday night. I got back in from New Orleans, week-long uh, work trip. And I should have been looking for my bed, but instead I decided to go to Larkana Locals. Anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, but to my surprise, I was one of three Larkana players there that night, surrounded by an army of Magic players for the Lost Caverns of Ixalan, I believe is what it's called. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so it's literally like three people for Lakata, like 40 for, for Magic. Uh, luckily, we were all pretty exhausted and delusional from working that week, and so we were all laughing. We were saying uh, some funny things, like referencing Yu-Gi-Oh! Like, I'll attack your life points directly, even though we're playing Lakata. Like, we were having a good time. Um, and ultimately, I think it, gave me, it got me thinking about just like the current state of Lakana in my area, which is like the outskirts of Atlanta. There's some great things and there's some not so great things. And I think it's going to get better over time. Um, but one of the great things I'll say is we had a recent restock. Uh, I don't know if anybody's gotten to benefit from that. <laughs> but um, some of the great things that come out of the restock, basically product getting back on the shelves, at least for a day or two, um, TCG player prices dropped tremendously. So... Uh, for example, uh, booster boxes for the first set were going for around three hundred plus dollars a box, which is ridiculous. Uh, the MSRP is one fifty. Now we're seeing that around about two thirty dollars, uh, which is closer to MSRP. Not quite there yet, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. Uh, and even better, the singles dropped. <laughs> so, for example, Tinkerbell Giant Fairy, which is one of the you know best cards, most playable cards of the set, that was about twenty five dollars a month ago, and now it's going for about twelve dollars a copy. Uh, so now we're starting to see like the game become more accessible. Um, and Ravensburger is definitely learning from the underestimating of the first set, basically, where they thought, oh, man, we don't know if people are going to like this game. And they underprinted it. Uh, and they realized very quickly that, no, people love this. They want this. And now we're starting to see them catch up to the demand. Um, yeah. Uh, any thoughts on the the price drops or just like seeing the restock actually affect the market before I jump into other things? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It's really awesome to see this game becoming more accessible. It's, you know, it was kind of tough for me to justify getting uh, more cards in the early days because I remember I was considering dropping 160 on a playset of Maleficent Monstrous Dragons 
but it's because I was building Sapphire Ruby. So like with the ramp shell and it's like, do I really want to be dropping this kind of money on a deck? That's like tier two at best, you know? <laughs> so I didn't want to go full Ruby Amethyst, but I did like the ramp package. That was one of the first things that was revealed that seemed to have worked well with the Ruby kind of high end. But you know, now that Maleficent Dragon sitting around $22, it's like the one thing that's missing from that shell for me. So I, I'm feeling a lot more enticed nowadays. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm glad to see more product on the shelves because it's it's opening up that accessibility for the player base. Uh, that's something that Lorcan has really struggled with over the past few months. And people who want to play have a great opportunity to play because we've got set one that's hitting the shelves or has hit the shelves. Set two is about to hit the shelves. And then we're supposed to get another reprint next year as well. So Lorcana hopefully is going to see an influx of more new people, more new players, more casual folks, and people being able to get their hands on the product that they're really excited about. So, yeah, I think that we're in a, a really good time to see uh, see growth. I think that's a good question, right? With more on the way, when do we think the, the best time to, <laughs> to kind of go in on more cards is? Do you think it's later with set two in the picture as well? I think it's uh, – honestly, right now, I think we're still in the – Pro players are going to be the meat of this game, unfortunately, until I think Q2 uh, 2024, uh, which is around the timeline of the um, rolling out of the official competitive circuit and the fan events that Ravensburgers talked about. I think that's when this game is truly going to start to shine. I think until then, we're still going to have a bit of a struggle of, you know, casual players maybe not being the main people coming out and playing like we thought, um, at least in my current environment. Uh, we started off the season of chapter one with like, let's say 20 plus people at one of my bigger locals playing Lorcana. And a lot of those were new TCG players who weren't really playing So about right now. You're kind of seeing sort of just the, the pro magic players left playing the game every week. And you might see an occasional casual player pop up. And I think that's between a, a couple of different things. I think, I think we've been sort of setting the tone uh, of Lorcana at the moment to be kind of another, you know, competitive TCG as opposed to a casual family friendly TCG that anybody should be able to show up to the store and play. Uh, and that's mostly because I think like the 1Ks, 2K events, everything sort of centered around money. Uh, I'll even say like, uh, I think uh, at my locals, we sort of incentivized um, winning and there was a bit of a uh, the, the rich get richer scenario, right? Where uh, in order to get packs, you had to win. <laughs> and so uh, you couldn't just walk up and say, hey, let me buy a pack for $5 or $6. Uh, you had to say, let me enter the tournament. Let me hopefully top and let me hopefully walk away with a couple packs. And so what that does create is sort of you have these pro players showing up who played other TCG, uh, TCGs, uh, they're building their $600 decks, and the casual players are showing up with their starter decks with a couple you know, upgrades, and they're unable to break through and win a pack. So then they're kind of stuck, right? I can't buy a pack. I can't win a pack. What do I do? Um, and I think a lot of that's going to get improved uh, between, one, the competitive and fan events. I think we're going to actually see uh, official events that aren't centered around money to draw people in, especially casual players. I think Pokemon does this really well, where you just show up to these events, you earn points, you go to regionals, nationals, worlds. It starts to feel like you're kind of gamifying the uh, the, the, the kind of the uh, action of showing up and just having a good time, as opposed to saying I have to win to get my money back. <laughs> like there's not no longer the incentive. Um, and then I think more product, duh, is going <laughs> to fix a lot of things. Uh, and I'll throw out one more suggestion before opening up to the room. I think one other thing that's going to really help close the gap, and hopefully it's sort of in their um, kind of in their window or their scope for future product. I think we need more like competitive structured deck as, as sealed products. I know, right now we have starter decks, uh, but I guess once you learn how to play, those don't really hold up very much. And I'll give you an example of just like Magic and Pokemon handling this really well. 
Uh, with Magic, uh, with Commander becoming the main format people are playing, most people can really just show up to their locals, buy a pre-con of the new set, and feel like they can sit at the table, shuffle up, and actually play and not feel like they're getting trampled. Uh, same with uh, Pokemon. Uh, I don't know if anybody follows Pokemon on the team necessarily, but... Maybe battle decks. Yeah, oh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like, I mean, just to be completely straight up, uh, Mew VMAX has been a reigning champion for a couple years now. They even just won the world championship, that deck. <laughs> and the fact that you can walk up to a Walmart or a Target and Timmy can go buy the, the Mew VMAX deck for 30 bucks, like that's creating such a lower barrier to entry to say, hey, I can actually buy this deck off the shelf add some upgrades to it and compete somewhat with the competitive players who are actually optimizing day uh, day in, day out. And I think Lorcana is going to need that in the next, you know, six months or so to really help let, you know, little Timmy, little Tanya walk into the store, buy something off the shelf and actually shuffle up and play at locals and feel like they have a chance to win. Uh, I'll finish by saying like a core principle of game design is that in order for everybody to have fun, everyone has to feel like they have a shot of winning. That's why games like Mario Kart incorporate like the blue shells and stuff. It's like no matter how good you are at drifting around the corners, there's always a way to balance it out to make it feel like the person in eighth place can still win. Uh, and I think Lorcana, especially with the audience it's trying to appeal to, is going to need a little bit more of that so that you can just basically show up invest your $50 and actually feel like you can compete with the person who spent 500. Yeah. I was actually pretty surprised at first when Larkana didn't implement a rubber band type mechanic, kind of like that Mario Kart thing that you mentioned, because uh, <laughs> I mean, Ryan Miller, Steve Warner have worked on Kaiju and dual masters, which has yeah. the shield triggers in that game. So that's like their kind of rubber band and like the more damage you take, the more cards you get sort of thing. So, you know, interesting to uh, kind of think about how we can, you know, have that rubber band mechanic with what's currently existing in Larkana. Like maybe, there's going to be like future design space for like, if there's a big enough lore difference and you know, some crazy effect happens or like maybe like a V star once per game sort of like comeback sort of thing. But you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> it's a, that might be a future discussion. Uh, but I think one of the big things I want to add to James's point here is that definitely league battle decks will be very helpful, but I think also designing more like set specific kind of like archetypes or decks that like work within just the single set so, of course, this isn't going to be a huge problem right now just because we're only going on set two. But, of course, the Dwarves archetype with Snow White that we talked about recently, it's, it's, it's really great to think about because a lot of the shell is going to be coming from set two. But, yeah, if you think about um, kind of like maybe defining archetypes in Larkana, like cards that only work within this like specific shell of a deck, but making sure that the barrier to entry is lower for these newer players. So like imagine set five is out, right? And it's like, all right, well, let me follow this deck list. And it's just like a good stuff package. And it's like, okay, well, I got to get these 13 cards from the first chapter, you know, these 12 cards from Rise of the Floodborn. And then of course these other, you know, good cards that come out in set three, set four, set five, right? And so like kind of reining in the design of the game to kind of introduce these like decks that can be designed or played within the singular singular set is also going to be a great way to kind of keep players getting into the game and also have player retention going forward as well totally totally and i think uh, even on top of the uh the dwarves package we're seeing in set two uh, the madame mim and merlin package is sort of its own deck as well like you could basically totally. just build off of all of the, the the purple cards or amethyst cards in the set and hopefully not need too much else from um, outside of it to be able to, to build an actual viable deck out of yeah, time will tell to see if uh, what ends up just being really good in set two, if it's just going to be like set one decks with upgrades. But a part of me thinks that's going to happen. But of course, I'm, I'm excited to see how it's going to shake out. Totally. I'm actually on the same page with you. I think there might be one or two architects uh, archetypes that sneak out of this that are like brand new. 
Otherwise, I think it's going to be sort of upgrading things we have right now. Because yeah, um, Amber sort of, Steel just seems like their cards are like designed for that deck. It's like it's like they knew it was good and they wanted to make it better. Yeah, like like the 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 Steel uh, Cinderella. It's like oh my gosh, they knew Steel Song was a thing. Like that that card goes right into it. <laughs> yeah. New new set releases are always a tough thing, right? Because you don't want to power creep so much that you invalidate the first set, right? Yeah. But you also you know you also want to make the second set relevant. So it's it's really tough. Uh, a tough thing for designers to get right about how do you encourage people to buy in the new set, but also keep buying the old set. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how Lurkana handles that. If there really is, if there's a good balance there, um, because you want, you want to sell both sets at this point, cause you, you just restock set one, two. Yeah. It's like, it's really that Goldilocks approach of like finding the ports. It's like just right in that sense. Um, right. Mons Johnson has talked about this who, you know, really big designer wizards R and D. And he is talking about kind of like, you know, he calls it inflation, but it's basically just power creep. And it's like, that's right. bad, you know, because it's, it's unsustainable over the course of a very long time. But then also interestingly, it's like the inverse where it's like when you don't design good enough cards and there's like no reason to buy the new set where it's like exactly. nothing, nothing is good whatsoever. And it's like, all right, well, no one plays them. No one, no one buys them. You don't have turnover. You don't have change within the game. And that's also bad, you know? So it's like, yeah, really writing in that Goldilocks situation where it's like, you have to make sure that it's just right in terms of design. Right. Well, actually, uh, on that topic, I'd love to hear how the rest of the teams, like their past experience with other set releases, like other games that have basically launched and how that felt sort of on day one, set one, set two, set three. Uh, let's dive into some of that. Yeah. I mean, I guess I could talk about Flesh and Blood. Its set releases were similar to what Lokana experienced somewhat now. Um, so Flesh and Blood, as we talked about before um, on this podcast, came out in 2019, um, right before the pandemic. So the first set was released in 2019, right when the second set. Um, Arcane Rising was coming out, the pandemic hit. So um, it's a little different in that sense that, that you know, so that, to take what I'm saying with a grain of salt somewhat, because there was a global pandemic happening when the, when the game was released and we thought the game was never going to take off because of that. Um, it, did, it did weather that, um, surprisingly. Um, but, but, you know, again, the first set, and then it doesn't, Flesh and Blood doesn't have the IP backing of Disney, right? doesn't have all these, these great... Uh, this great history of IP to support it. So the first set was extremely small. Welcome to Wraith was, you know, uh, you know, like just had a cult following it really about people that knew about it, people that stores that supported it. It was, it was, it was not big at all. And so that's the second set. I think they, uh, the rumor is we think, I don't know if we know the exact numbers anymore, but we think they doubled the amount they uh, box they produced. Um, and that's really, again, still was pretty hard to find, got pretty expensive um but but again people were were able to get it um especially since the pandemic hit and and people weren't weren't really playing that much um the third set is really what things got crazy because the third set for flesh and blood um and flesh and blood has a model where they have these supplemental sets so the third set was um there were no new heroes released so no no new real um in that sense it wasn't a power boost to to create new parts of the game you know it wasn't it wasn't new mechanics really introduced it was this set supplemented the first two sets right so it was just cards that supported all existing archetypes in the game um and that's really when for whatever reason like it's it hit these collectors the collector's market which i think kind of is kind of where i i in my mind i think lorcana started with right like collectors were really hitting the ground hard in lorcana because everybody loves ip they want to buy all these boxes they want to have these cards but for whatever reason people in the third set of flesh and blood um, just started hoarding boxes 
Um, like all these collectors just bought them all up right away. Again, it was, you know, government stimulus money. I don't know what was happening, but like <laughs> it was the middle of the pandemic. I don't know if people had extra money, but they bought out all of the yeah. third set. That 2020, um, 21 mark, 2021 market was weird. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, strange. It's just, I mean, like the boxes were, you know, were going for like 500, 600 bucks and like crazy amounts. Right. Um, so just like that, at that point, people get found out about fresh blood. That's how people found out. Like, what is this crazy game that nobody could buy at this point because all the first two sets were sold out. And now this third set, um, you know, is, is selling for these crazy amounts. And is a game that really that good? Or people just buying it because, you know, they have the thoughts to do like what, like what's going on. Um, so that's kind of like, that's that history reflects back in some ways to me to Larkana, but a little bit reverse because I think collectors have really hit Larkana hard. Um, it's in addition to pro uh, people that want to play, you know, the game and professional players and people that want to like uh, get ready for actually playing money tournaments, all that kind of stuff. So you have both things going on with, with Larkana um, where it took some time for flesh and blood to get into that. Um, luckily by the fourth set, you know, or luckily or like depending on who you were, or what you did, um, Monarch was historically a flesh of blood. Like people know about that, that like the set where price just tanked, right? So it, it was a really interesting point where like because they because they, they printed a ton of Monarch, which is which which is what Ravensburger is going to do. That's what that that's what breaks this. Like you have to print way more than you need because that that you have to flood the market and that and that's what um, flesh of blood did. Um, and people, I remember like still opening up packs of Monarch and then the prices were inflated because of the third set. And so um, we were selling like these, these cards the first week of opening for crazy amounts. But then people realized, oh crap, <laughs> there are way too many boxes of this stuff. So like people were like, you know, like you see TCG player, like everything, like cars just going up there, going up there. And then like price just like, took a, a, a dive and they've never, and now, you know, and that's, and that's when the game got in the hands of players, right? That's when people were able to actually go to TCG player, buy singles, get decks, get into the game and really learn the game and actually learn it's a great, it's a great game. Um, but th- I think that's in my, you know, hearing uh, Gregor three, hearing James talk, that's what I think Lorcan's going to need is really, you know, I don't know what happens with set two or what happens set three when it happens, but like really the market just needs to be oversaturated to a certain point um, for this to, to, to get the collectors to back away and get the players in the game. Yeah, I love how we're just rolling with me being Gregory now, but yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go with it. But yeah, I mean, definitely right. Like just making sure that, cards are accessible to players is just going to go such a long way for your game right because it's like you need to have people that are actually playing the game because it's called a trading card game right it's right. like it's, it's meant to be played you know th- these are collectible cards um but you know that's how it goes all right everybody we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back after this Thank you so much for joining us here on this episode. If you want to help support the show, you can follow us on X or Facebook at Lorconicast, as well as leave a review on your favorite podcast aggregate. This helps your friends know about the awesome content you're listening to and grow and build this amazing community that we have. Thank you so much for joining us, and we're going to get right back into the show. All right, and we are back with the second half of this episode, and I want to kick it back to uh, Chris Bates because... Not only has he he brought up a really good point. Lorcana is a brand new trading card game, and it's kind of going through those very similar those growth and birthing pains as a new trading card game. You're trying to print enough product so that people can get their hands on it. 
but not so much product that the game is worthless and sitting in warehouses not selling. But at the same point, you have a second set coming out, but you want to make sure people are buying your product without ostracizing them and making set two more powerful than set one. And there's this really difficult balance of a, a insurmountable amount of variables that players may or may not know or even care about. A lot of people want to purchase a product, have fun with the product, and we may or may not be aware of all of the details and hard work that go in on the back end. And what we're seeing with Lorcana is a part of that process. But there are other trading card games that have done the exact same thing and gone through the exact same birthing pains. And one of them we're going to talk about now that uh, we're all kind of interested in is Sorcery TCG. So tell us a little bit about that, Chris. Yeah. So Sorcery Contested Realms um, is the name of the game. And um, the first thing I'll say is this game is not for everybody. Um, So which is, which I think is interesting in the market these days where it, you know, I I think obviously they want to be successful. They want to sell their game. They want people to play the game, Um, but they've made no, um, They've been very upfront about what they are and what they will be, um, which is not is not going to be a super um, competitive, you know, have a tournament scene, you know, they do that whole do the whole flesh and like some, some ways in that sense, the, the opposite of flesh and blood, where there's not going to be a world necessarily or like this whole pro um, quest circuit, all this kind of stuff. Um, they really are focused on, you know, fun, that tabletop experience. Um, the first thing you'll notice about the game is the art is amazing in my opinion, but I, I you know, I could definitely see that it's, it's not, um, it, it's not again, uh, typical of Lurkana or magic these days or, um, or flesh and blood. It is all hand painted art. It really harkens back to early magic gathering days where, the, where they used a lot of, I believe almost, I believe all that was hand painted at that point, but really like the revised and all those first few sets of magic, um, hand painted art that really sticks out. Um, and you know, inversely, like every, like there is, you know, like magic these days is so like the whole set has to match and have a similar theme. Right. So the cards in this um, game don't really, they, I, I think they have a theme, but again, it's all hand, hand painted art. So it, it it's, not really a cohesive theme. It just looks all great individual pieces of art put together. Um, on top of that, the other, the other unique thing is the model is uh, they, they're doing one set a year. That's the goal. One big set a year. Um, it is a, it is a trading card game. Um, but the first set um, is about 400 plus cards. Um, it also had this growing pain. You know, we just talked about a, a couple, a couple minutes ago um, where they kickstarted it. So I think they, you know, they made like four million or some some great amount of money on Kickstarter, but it's still that still is a very small amount of people that actually got the the first set of the game. Um, so the beta just released this. We're recording earlier, but the, the beta released um, the week of November 9th. Um, and the beta should be available most places. I, I know in Minnesota where I am, a lot of a lot of game stores have it. Um, I'm a big fan of Team Covenant. If any of you guys, if we want to plug somebody, they give us a they give some ad money someday too, but Team Covenant um, has a, their website. Uh, but again, you know, if, it, if what I'm saying like rings to you at all, definitely check it out. Sorcery, uh, Contested Realms uh, also has uh, a tat. So it's addition to like a normal, you know, having your avatar on the board, trying to do 20 damage to the other person, that kind of stuff, summoning, summoning minions, summoning, casting spells, all that kind of good stuff. It also has a, um, a physical part to the game. It's played on a board of a four by five uh, grid uh, where you actually put your 
your mana or your or your your sites as they call them um, physically on the board, and that's the land you create a land and you play the game where your monsters and, and where everything will be fighting at. Um, so there's also this um, physical, directional, tactile part of the game as well. Um, so again, me and my my local play group have have having a blast playing it, opening packs up. Um, I, I got the full collection, the full set already. I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say. Um, so I'm really excited to just uh, sit down and make some decks, you know, and not worry about going into a tournament or worry about, you know, having to play it every week or anything like that. Just playing what I want to play. Um, have fun with it. Yeah, I really do like that grid-based approach to it. I think it's really cool. Yeah. And I, I really wish more trading card games would actually start using it. Um, one of the Japanese trading card games I really like is called Zillions of Enemy X, and it's played by a three by three on a three by three grid that's shared between you and your opponent. So it's kind okay. of like tic tac toe with cards. Yeah, <laughs> but sorcery also, you know, kind of seems to scratch that similar itch, which it's you said it's four by five. Yes, for sure. Right. Yep, four by five. Yeah. Yep. So it seems to be a bit more tactical on that end. Where three by three, there's only really so many places right. you can place cards. But yeah, four by five, I'd imagine there's like kind of that chess based element where it's like mm. positioning really matters or like plants versus zombies, whatever kind of grid based game you <laughs> want to compare it to. Right. But it's like, yeah, really like the placement of your cards, I'd imagine really contributes a lot to you eventually winning the game or like, right. And then it's again, the standard rule of the game, obviously cards change all the, the rules of the game, right. That's the golden rule. Um, but other standard rules of the game, you know, you could only, you're really going to be able to move on the sites you put down. Right. So like, depending on how, and you in placing a site, putting a putting a, a, a physical location on the board usually takes your action for your avatar that turn. Um, so you can still summon other monsters, or whatever. But like, usually you're either you do your special ability or you play you put a piece of land on the board. Um, so like depending on what kind of deck you are, if you're a control deck or whatever, you might want to you know kind of corner off part of the board and like try to protect it while you send your minions off to try to get over to the other side of the board, that kind of stuff. Um, or sometimes you want to just like put down one or two pieces of land and rush over to the other side. Right. I, one part I haven't said, and I don't want to go into all the rules cause that'd be too long, but um, you know, the, the point of the game is to take your, uh, your opponent's uh, health down to 20 from 20 to zero. You do that by doing damage, um, but you can actually attack your opponent's land. So the sites they put out. So if they, if they, if they put a site near you, um, you, uh, there's a movement part where your monsters can move one square and then attack. So they, you could just attack their land and do that damage until they're at, until they take the 20 damage and they're what's called death's door. At that point, either a monster has to directly hit their avatar or you have to cast a spell and hit their avatar, something like that. So the death's door part, I found out like playing our local games really changes the course of the game because obviously you can like block and intercept all this other kind of stuff, all these other mechanics. Um, but it really becomes a, a, a game of like, you know, can you position like that chess match? Can you position yourself where you get that person to death's door? And even then you got to figure out, well, how am I actually going to hit them? Right. Cause it's pretty easy to hit their sites depending on how they put, how they put the land out, but it, it could be hard if they go to the corner. How am I going to get to them? You know, um, how, how am I going to close the game out? So that part really is like two games of one in that, in that sense. Yeah. And I would love for you to kind of eliminate us a little bit about the release of beta because alpha Again, we're talking about Lorcana kind of as the the pivotal idea of set one is still kind of hard to find. Set two could change the the ability to find Lorcana. Set three should improve over time. And we want to make sure people are aware that trading card games have these birthing pains, but we've also got other games we can look at and go, this game, Flesh and Blood, they had a problem. They fixed it. They're super successful. Uh, sorcery, they had some problems, they fixed it, now they're doing extremely well, yada, yada, yada. 
and just kind of remind people that although Lorcana might have some birthing pains right now, as long as they just keep doing better and improving and producing more stuff, oh, Lorcana's going to be super easy to get your hands on by, you know, 2024. Like, we want to make sure people have hope because Lorcana is a great game and it's just going to take a little bit of time to get that product into the hands of all the people, casual players, collectors, tournament players, families, friends, all of the above. And and the scale of magnitude that Lacrona is experiencing is, I, I would venture to say, no other TCG has experienced before, right? I don't know any other TCG coming out that like the, with their first set hitting Target and Walmart like that, right? So like you got to think that like even like Magic and Pokemon, all these places, they weren't they they didn't start at at no. stores like that, right? No. Like they they worked their way up. Like but Lord kind of started there. So obviously they have really experienced people at the helm. Um obviously as we've been talking about for a year and a half now, like this IP is everything in, in our culture is so strong. Um and and I, I think I've mentioned other episodes of the past that like what a casual player really means, and I and I was talking about what kind of what James was talking about earlier, to me a casual player really is somebody that that may not even show up the weeklies, right? A casual play, like like for these companies, they sell most of their product to when they get to that target stage or that Walmart stage to people that just grab them packs off the shelf because it looks cool, right? Mm-hmm. Buying a couple packs for the kids. And they play it, yeah. That's what that's what they want. Yeah, that's, I mean, they're making most of their money out. They're not making their money off the tournament grinders, guys. Like, because we've spent our money, we we spend a thousand bucks or whatever it costs. <laughs> you know, but like they they need obviously. They get your money and then you have all your cards, you're done. They want people to be going to Target every week and grabbing packs. So it really is, it needs to hit that point where, um, and I think Lacrona more than other other people, they really need to get the mindset. They need to flood the market because again, you know, they shouldn't, and, and I think Lacrona feels this way, if I could, you know, based on their previous actions, like they're not really worried about the collectors, right? Because if they were about the collectors, they would have done the alpha and beta set. They would have done something like that, right? They didn't do that. They didn't. They didn't make. They didn't make that first. Those print. Those first printing cards any more valuable than second printing cards. Yeah. Um, so I think I in know. that respect that that they should be more willing to take that risk to like get as much product that they can out there to get in the players' um, hands and to get on those shelves so the game is known and people see it and people want to grab packs for the kids. Yeah. Although inadvertently, it seems like there is some printing differences between the first and right. second set. So you know, maybe just all, some best efforts. We'll see how that shakes out. And you, know, of course, people are people. People always be saying, "Oh, the first set was better." The second. I mean, <laughs> we're you have an interest to do that, right? Because that makes the stuff you have in your house more valuable, right? Of course, <laughs> right. people that, that ordered <laughs> the first set, yeah. right? They're going to be like, "Oh, that pr- our, our printing had a better my uh, copy of Poison of, Apple right, has a chance, slightly right? yeah, a slightly darker shade of red." It's all that stuff. <laughs> so again, we're here to tell you people listen to this podcast, don't buy into that stuff. That is not, you know, um, maybe, maybe in 20 years, maybe it'll make a difference. I, I would not worry about that at this point. Uh, I would, I would do whatever I could to get to pay a reasonable price MSRP, um, to get your, your product. And, and hopefully, uh, it's up to, it's up to Robinsburg to fix this problem of, of not having enough product out there. Well, yeah, well, per- yeah, personally, when it comes to that printing stuff, I'm just hoping that eventually like the print runs are so inconsistent that I'll just be hard to tell. <laughs> Consistency is the key, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like the wise word of advice is just like whatever you did at the factory to keep these inconsistent, keep it going. Right. Oh, right. Keep them guessing, right? Like just like this weird, like shadowless situation where it's like, okay, yes. well, this, yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely interesting. Um, if I may, I want to pivot a little bit over to kind of the Bandai trading card games and their launches because this is, I guess, the shining ray of hope for all the Lurkana players that. 
you know, are, you know, perhaps a little bit underwhelmed by the launch or wishing they got to find more product because, uh, most Bandai launches, with one exception, which is the stinker, I'll get into that one, Battle Spirit Saga, but most Bandai launches actually had the same exact problem, which is just, you know, the typical business economics principle of too much demand, not enough supply, the boxes go up way much in price. Um, and that happened for both uh, the Digimon trading card game, which released stateside in 2021, and the most recent One Piece trading card game, which released stateside in late 2022. Um, you know, kind of the similar story that you've, you've probably heard throughout all of this, you know, kind of the flesh and blood story as well. But, you know, Digimon booster boxes were going upwards of $200, which the MSRP is somewhere in the 80s. Same thing with One Piece. And of course, you know, listeners will probably be happy to hear that the supply issues have sorted themselves out for both games and it didn't really take them too long to do it. So, Currently in One Piece, we're on OPO4, which is Kingdoms of Intrigue. That box you can buy for around $80 on TCG Player, which is a little bit under MSRP. That shakes out to around $3.33 per pack. And so, you know, we're back to MSRP on One Piece. And uh, we'll see how long it takes to kind of break the stigma. But I'd imagine many card game players haven't touched One Piece where it's like, oh, that's that game that's like really expensive because it's tied to a popular anime franchise. And it's like, yeah, that once was true. It's uh, coming back down to earth now. And so, you know, I have no doubt in my mind that Robinsburg is actually going to be able to turn the tide on this one and be able to have that product availability. Um, Agreed. Yeah. You could tell they're listening. They're, they're listening. They're trying to put out press releases. They're, they're very quickly learning from the early underestimating of, of how this was going to go on day one. And they're like, oh, no, people want this. And they're, they're making changes fast. Obviously, they can't make a printer print faster. You know, that's going to take yeah. a month to make <laughs> happen. Uh, but I think by... Early next year, you're going to start to see it maybe hit that one piece area where things are closer to MSRP. People can actually find it on the shelves at a store. And there's no longer this fear of like, oh, that's that expensive game that I can't play. Um, so I'm excited about that. For sure. Yeah, right. And like, I think one thing that's also interesting and one thing I've heard echoed throughout the community for a while is like, oh, print, print the set into the ground, which is not really a notion that I am too in favor of as well, because it's like, you know, whether or not people want to admit it or not, they want their cards to have some sort of value. And then overprinting is also an issue as Suge, I think has mentioned earlier in this podcast as well, where it's like having too much unmoving inventory is how businesses go out of business. Right. So it's like, we don't want to have that issue um, either. And I feel like that serves as kind of a perfect segue into the other stinker of a card game that Bandai has released. I think that this is a case of kind of Icarus, the legend of Icarus and flying too close to the sun. But, um, <laughs> Bandai, I think well-intentioned um, they were on a kick with one piece, which is perhaps one of the most popular anime of all time. Digimon, which is kind of a cult classic has a cult following for, you know, kind of the, po- the, po- the po- fans that were too cool for Pokemon growing up. And I decided, Wait, to Hey, Hey, what are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> they decided to go for the slightly edgier, more edgy option. Um, and of course, but, but you they're know, both good. They're different. I mean, they're both great. To yeah, my yeah. parents, they were all the same thing. You're playing. <laughs> oh, you're playing Pokemon. No. <laughs> Why you got to bring my mom into the conversation? Like so perfectly. As a side note, has anyone seen that playmat where it's Ash Ketchum having a dual disc with an Agumon by his yeah. side? Yes, 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 I <laughs> um, but yeah, exactly. To James's mom, that's that's the image that plays in her head. I'm <laughs> trying to compare all these franchises together. Uh, but yeah, Battle Spirit Saga actually has the issue of like things sitting in warehouses. You can buy a box of Dawn of History, which is the first set of Battle Spirit Saga, for around twenty dollars, 
which is um, at this point stores are selling them to uh, um, like work towards breaking even at this point, they aren't even breaking even it's like a loss preventer, like really just to have more liquid to buy other products that they have more faith in at this point. Right. So it's been a tough launch and uh, really, you know, I'm not quite sure how Bandai could have done the launch better. I think they want to bring it over because it's one of their proprietary like flagship games in Japan. Uh, I'm not sure how the ownership rights kind of shakes out in Japan, but I imagine that, you know, bringing over the flagship game, they, you know, have all the rights to um, is, is typically a good move for business. But the issue is that Battle Spirit Saga is a well-designed game. It has good design fundamentals, but the, the issue is that it has the same high fantasy aesthetic like sorcery, like magic, like flesh and blood, like, you know, like, and so really in order to stand out, um, there need to, needed to have been something else. And of course, comparing it over to One Piece and Dragon Ball and Digimon that have that IP brand recognizability already. And of course, comparing it over to Disney. I feel like that, like have, being tied to an IP is like a cheat code to have your game sell more, like reg- regardless of you know, the quality of it or, or, or whatever, you know, it's just like, all right, well, you know, like some people, you know, aren't going to be here for like, just straight up gameplay. Like having the recognizable characters is a huge draw to purchasing the product. And so having to carry itself just on the back of, you know, a lot of people in Japan playing it, which of course, you know, that's <laughs> the opposite side of the world of us. And, you know, just trying to carry itself off of gameplay and like huge cash prizes. It feels like kind of like the overwatch of trading card games where like they try to draw <laughs> people in that we're playing Counter-Strike or other first-person shooters or something like that into to Overwatch just with like these huge cash prizes. And it seems to have backfired on them, uh, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, when it comes to Arcana, don't fear the Bandai releases. Most of them have had similar issues, but I think Arcana has a great IP back in it and being able to sort out that supply issue is going to be great. I would hope for around MSRP. Again, I don't love the print-into-the-ground notion because of reasons I've outlined before, but yeah, that's kind of my, my spiel about a uh, Bandai card games. Thanks for listening. I am stepping off the soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really think you bring up some, some excellent points and that's kind of the, the main idea for this episode as we, we start to wrap things up and that's, there is a fear. There's a very understandable fear that Lorcana could suffer some product shortages with set two. It could happen. We don't know because we don't have the product in our hands. We don't know the availability, but we like I'm I'm very much a historical and analytic data driven kind of person. And although we don't know the fate of Lorcana per se, we can look at other established games and show how their first set, their first year might have been a little rough, but they figured it out. The games have stabilized. The product is in people's hands. The price point is exactly where it's supposed to be minus battle spirit saga that's the outlier <laughs> right. but whoops <laughs> if if people who are listening are patient and willing to wait maybe you take a break and you come back whatever capacity works best for you your hobby structure your wallet your lifestyle there is a lot of hope that Lorcana will stabilize and we don't have to fear that the game is dead the game is unpurchasable that speculators and collectors and pro players are going to drive it into the ground i don't believe that for one bit I don't know what the answer is, and I don't know what the future looks like, but we have gone through multiple card games from multiple companies, and they all kind of share a similar thing. Their first couple sets were not great. 
Yeah. Just I also, a factual thing. Right. I'm going to chime in real quick as well and say that like, what's really funny here is that, or I guess not even funny is that like, so I did business analytics in undergrad and I don't even blame Robinsberger here for this launch because like one of the main principles of analytics and business and being able to predict demand and all this fun stuff is that like you need a data set, right? And so like Robinsberger was going to this like completely blind where it's like, you know, they saw the demand from D23. They probably tried to get some data from that, but it's like, how can you realistically print demand of a future product when you don't actually know how many people want the product, you know? And so I think it's important to emphasize here that like, while like the price and the landscape and the market of Locrana is not ideal, it's also important to say that like I don't see a, a way that Ravensburger could have done it better unless they just magically guessed demand better than you know they, they did previously. Time machine. Time yeah. machine is a viable option. It's like they knew the game was going to be successful, but I think the big question on their mind was like, okay, so how successful are we talking exactly. here? And like that question was, you know, it turns out to be the big one that's that's tough for many businesses, especially when they're printing this big new, you know, IP, you know, like kind of blockbuster trading card game. So I just want to throw that out there. You know, like this isn't meant as a critique because I definitely couldn't have done better. You know, it's, it's just a tough area all around. Yeah. And I, to close out, I, I do think they also had that same uh, thought process with the competitive uh, circuit. I know we were all wondering why I didn't roll out with that initially, but if we're thinking from the same perspective, uh, they're able to sort of beta test how people want to compete Who's going to show up? How do they want it to show up? What do they like? What do they not like uh, by seeing other people run events and then learn from that? Because Robinsberger's never done this before. They've never had a competitive card game. Uh, closest thing was Villainous, I guess. But like that's not as much of like a competitive uh, scene as, as probably these other card games like Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, Magic. And so basically having this first two sets be an experiment of, hey, watch how people play. Watch how people set up these tournaments, learn what they like and don't like, and then we'll roll ours out. I think that's probably what they were going for. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on board with you. And that's that's going to bring us to a close. So I'm really excited about Rise of the Floodborne. I think everyone here is really excited to see all the rest of the cards because the whole set hasn't been revealed. Excited to get our hands on some of these new cards, make upgrades and adjustments to our decks, try new things at locals. And I think the thing I'm most excited about for this new set is seeing new people come into Lorcana, be it people who started and maybe dropped off, people who never played it. I'm just really excited to like go to locals, see new faces, make new friends, and have some really cool memories and experiences with Rise of the Floodborne. So uh, any last thoughts before we get on out of here, everybody? Looking forward to set two. Same. Peace. Yep. All right. Well, then y'all can find us on social media at Twitter and Facebook at Lorikanacast. And we will see everyone next time. So remember, Ohana means family, which means nobody gets left behind and nobody gets forgotten.